lot of questions, um, and not all of them are bad. I, one is just, I think there still is a lot that we don't know, right? Like, we don't know exactly, like, what is the economy design going to be? Friends, welcome to the Navig Gaming Podcast. This is the one podcast to stay up to date with all the latest game business news because we are the roundtable segment. And I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navig, and Anil Dasgupta, co-CEO and co-founder of First Light Games. Hello. Howdy. Hello. All right, well, we're going to jump into a little more drama about Microsoft Activision acquisition. So, Aaron, what are now the latest concerns that we've seen? Yeah, fun update. So there is more mounting risk and pressures around this deal. And really, there, there are two small updates here that I think we can break down. The first, last week, both NVIDIA and Google filed concerns with the FTC about the deal. And if you think about it, it's kind of obvious why. Google competes with Microsoft on many dimensions and doesn't want Microsoft to get any further edge anywhere even though it largely doesn't compete around gaming, especially since Stadia is shutting down. And NVIDIA, of course, has GeForce Now as a subscription cloud gaming service on PC, and Game Pass is a clear threat to that, even though NVIDIA and Microsoft work together with Azure um, in other ways. Um, so, so there's that. I don't necessarily think that you know these companies' filing concerns are that big of a deal. And in some cases, it doesn't even mean that both of them are 100% opposed to the deal. It's just filing concerns about certain parts of what might happen. But either way, these are big giants in the industry um, and just in the world in general. So um, it's worth noting. But second, and what's more notable is that it's being reported that the EU regulatory body will likely object the deal soon. And this is off the heels of last month when the FTC in the US filed a complaint against the deal as well, both of which, you know, still might go to court and get contested. And, you know, there's often long drawn out legal processes to these things. But even so, like, again, that still is pretty big news. And again, it's it's completely reasonable to have scrutiny around this deal. It's big. And you know, yes, even though it's not monopolistic in any way, it still is a source of consolidation in the industry, and that's worth paying attention to. Um, and the conversations around certain major IPs, namely Call of Duty in this case, not being made exclusive is worthwhile. And it's worth noting that, you know, that's also what Xbox wants. Um, so, and if there are any concessions, hopefully that could go smoothly. Um, but there is a part of these conversations, especially from regulators, that I'll just say kind of bugs me. <laughs> and and that's nothing new because people know everything regulators seem to do bugs me in some way on this, on this podcast. Um, but um, it's almost like in this case, regulators have a simplistic lens of viewing the market today in which if a tech company gets bigger, that in and of itself is considered bad. bad. The whole big tech bad you know, is the predominant narrative, but that's so oversimplistic. And what these regulators, I think, are completely missing about this deal is that it actually increases competition in the market, namely business model competition. And if we look across the entire history of the games industry, nearly all leaps of progress that have shaken the industry up in some way happened when new technologies enabled new business models. And today, 
cross-platform and cloud gaming wrapped up in some subscription, you know, is an exciting new business model that is good for consumers and poses to potentially shake things up in the market. And these regulators are acting in ways that preserve the status quo and stifle business model competition. Um, it potentially doesn't allow the market to, to change as fast as it could, which is actually the opposite of doing their job, if you think about it. So, I mean, obviously, I have my, my own opinion on what should happen and, you know, kind of the flaws and some of the, the thinking here that the regulators are, are pushing out. But hopefully, you know, whatever the decision is, whatever concessions are come up with or whatever the reasoning is, I just hope that it looks past, you know, big tech bad and like, like truly grounds it and whatever happens in something a bit more logical. Otherwise, it's just sort of a, a sad state beyond just like even like this one deal, but just kind of how governments are treating the, the business world at large. So that is my update there. Okay, well, on to Amazon Game Studios. So what kicked off um, me deciding to do an update on this is that John Smedley, is going to be leaving Amazon Game Studios after six years as a studio head. I thought, well, let's go and check the pulse of what's happening with the studio. And then I realized, actually, 2022 was a pretty quiet year. Um, there wasn't much in terms of news. Uh, I, I found nothing talking about first-party IPs. If I go and read um, the studio's mission, they still talk about it, but there's no update on it. And so I also looked at the Amazon Games job board, and there's not there aren't no open roles for new IP. Um, the dev roles are focused on new worlds. So my read on what's happening with Amazon Game Studios is that so New World and the successful publishing of Lost Ark early in 2022, I think it proved to potential partners that Amazon does have the experience to execute, to deliver a large a scale launch um, in terms of multiplayer games. And then I think the recently announced exit of the studio head and also around March last year of the VP of games, Mike Frazzini, it could be an indication of just a change in strategy overall of trying to develop their first party games and their own IPs and just double down on what they do best, which is publishing. And so I think just this makes so much so much sense for Amazon Game Studios because I think they're just in this unique publisher competitive space where they have the brand name to negotiate these great deals. They have multiplayer online gaming ex expertise and a tech stack that they can offer. They have integrations with Prime Gaming and Twitch. They have a history of operating and executing global marketing strategies. And so that's what I trust Amazon to do. And I think an evidence of that is they managed to have the deal with um, Crystal Dynamics to publish the next single player Tomb Raider game, which is also meant to be based on potentially a transmedia. Um, strategy, which again is something that Amazon can provide, especially with Prime. Is it Prime Video? Is that how it's called? I'm not sure. Anyway, <laughs> and then also the publishing deal with Bandai Namco's Blue Protocol MOARPG. I mean, I think it, I think leaning into publishing can make sense. I don't know what kind of terms they're offering companies or exactly how they're competing to kind of lock these down. Um, so I'd, I'd be curious about that. But also, I mean, this is Amazon. They just always continue to take shots at things all over the place. So I have a feeling that they're they're actually not done <laughs> at like taking shots at the games industry. I don't know if that means taking other big swings at you know creating AAA games themselves or 
you know, leaning even more into more like the developer, like tech side more or or something, something else completely. Um, but I have a feeling this is still like pretty early in their journey to figure out where they're ultimately trying to to take all of this. But of course, refocusing kind of as you go down that journey to kind of ease out of what didn't work and ease into what is working. I think that that makes sense. Do we know if those positions were filled internally or if they uh, recruited externally to replace those positions? Because they're pretty senior positions to have left. I know that the VP of games has been substituted. Well, backfilled, I should say, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, for the studio head, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to assume that they will. I didn't see anything open on the job board. Well, but I mean, That's as, what I have got. As per Aaron's point, I think it does kind of remind me a lot of Riot Games in that Riot Games for the longest time were jokingly called Riot Game by a lot of people in the industry, right? Because they only had League of Legends and they were supposedly working on new IPs for years and years and people like, yeah, whatever. And then eventually you did get teamfight tactics and you got Valorant and you got Project L and some of these games did really become quite big successes. And my understanding is that internally, you know, they cut a lot of games. They had like such a like ferociously high barrier of what success would mean that, you know, they were quite willing just to do it because they're like, well, it doesn't really matter. We've got the cash cow now. Amazon doesn't have a cash cow in terms of their gaming studios, but they're certainly not under pressure unless they've got orders from above to want to cut it. So look, it's hard for us to really make a judgment one way or the other, right? We don't know what happens behind closed doors. I would agree with your point though, Maria. I think on paper, it makes way more sense to go that way. Because I was going to say that making video games is hard, like news at 10, right? <laughs> but it really is. If you don't have that culture, it's it, it's come up uh, quite a few times in our previous metacasts, right, as well, how, you know, a lot of these tech companies think that they can make games and they just find out that that is a whole different, just because you're good at making tech, so I mean, you're good at making games. Um, I also agreed that, like, the sort of opportunity of making an accessible game that is so strong, why would someone like Amazon just go for sort of, like, the, the sort of low win route, it doesn't really feel like them as a company. You know, they do tend to take these big shots because if you win, it really disrupts the industry to make huge impacts on it. Whereas if it just became another publisher and support, I'm sure that would be a profitable business, very profitable even, but it's not really going to like drive stock value or so on and so forth. So I imagine that they still have some things in the works. I think if anything, they, they've not been shy to close things down completely. I don't know if you guys remember the ill-fated Amazon phone that they tried you know, back when everyone was trying to make their own mobile phone. And hey, that Amazon is a company that could make it work, if you ask me. They've got the logistics, they've got the, the technology, they're able to recruit the very best, but they canned it pretty early, obviously deciding that no, that it wasn't for them. This one has been around for a long time, they're still going. So I think there's still life in the old uh, horse here, as they would say. <laughs> okay, well, maybe, maybe I will be proven wrong in the future. I, I just can't find any evidence of them still investing in that first party IP, apart from continuing developing a new world and expanding its content. Oh, yeah, We'll yeah. have to wait and see then. Okay. Yeah. We'll see. Hey, Maria, could I give one more quick update before we, we jump into the discussion? An off-the-cuff update? Yeah, this please. is kind of off-the-cuff, but I was thinking, so um, last night I watched uh, The Last of Us, the TV show premiere. It was really good, and so I just wanted to, to throw that out, but more importantly, I, I was looking at the stats, and um, the Last of Us was HBO's second largest series debut after House of the Dragon in the past 13 years. It garnered about like 5 million viewers on just like that opening, um, which is pretty incredible. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, good, good start, probably a good show. But I just wanted to call it out because I do think that 
it kind of is a big moment. Um, you know, we've seen a rising trend of improved video game adaptions, but to me, like like this one is like the marker of like the new golden age, or just like showing like what truly is possible at like the pinnacle of video game adaptions. And so, um, hopefully, we'll see more more things like this, and that the show itself continues to you know stay good as the episodes um, come out. But anyways, I do think it it kind of like officially marks like it's turning point and kind of like the intersection of like video games and and it's, and like, it's like game of thrones right game of thrones proved that fantasy could work on tv and then you yeah. have amazon coming all in everyone wanted their own fantasy ip and they jumped into it so um look forward to seeing your favorite video game as a tv show in the next 12 to 36 months i guess is what we're saying <laughs> yeah and hopefully hopefully more um yeah, more teams make sure that these adaptions are good. It still has been hit and miss. And like even with like fantasy, right? Like Game of Thrones is awesome, but other things have been completely hit and miss. We have to expect the same the same kind of trend here. But hopefully the heights that we'll continue to see more going forward will just be just a, a new level, uh, much higher than what we've seen in the past. So anyways, just thought that was that was cool. I don't know if it helps that more and more people play play games, especially as the movie directors are aging in terms of their talent. You have extremely professional, excellent movie directors who are also games gamers at heart. At least what I've heard about Last of Us is that it is someone that has played, felt, and understood through and through the emotional journey that the player goes on, and they're trying to replicate that journey, not without all of by including all of the details that happen in the game, but trying to make sure that they're hitting on those emotional points. Aaron, you have the um, the Ubisoft update. Yeah, let me pull up my notes. Um, so last week, Ubisoft published a bunch of um, negative leaning updates and an investor letter titled Ubisoft strengthens strategic focus on biggest brands and live services with a new set of measures cementing long-term growth and value creation prospects. So I think that the PR person who is tasked with coming up with that title maybe maybe went a little too hard on, on trying to make a find a positive spin on what was actually, you know, in in the message. Um, but in short, like what that message entailed was that Ubisoft canceled three unannounced games, which is on top of four more canceled games uh, last year. And the rationale here is that the company wants to focus more on live ops of existing or more promising games, I guess. Um, also, Skull and Bones was delayed again. I think this marks the sixth time that the game has been delayed, which is wow. a pretty remarkable feat. Uh, <laughs> yikes. Is yeah, yeah, big yikes. Um, and then furthermore, the company naturally, because of you know those updates, reduced its financial guidance again lowered its booking guidance 13% for the year, and it announced the $200 million cost reduction plan over the next two years. So in short, there is not much to celebrate here in this message. And sadly, this type of announcement isn't new. Um, and we've, we've kind of seen an ongoing trend from Ubisoft over the past two, three years of you know missing targets, um, kind of maybe a strategic lack of focus and some of their new ambitions that haven't really panned out. Um, and we've talked about a bunch of that in previous episodes over, over time. Um, but before we even just like dig into like the specific announced changes and where we think 
Ubisoft will go next, even because of some of this. Um, I I would maybe just like to take a moment to hear your thoughts on like why do you think that they continue to underperform time and time again? Like why is this not fixable for them? Yeah, well, I think it's a great question. I think for myself, if you were to think about Ubisoft, what do they stand for or what are they good at? And that's kind of hard to put into context, right? If I think about other publishers like EA, they make great sports titles. They're great at doing that, right? You know, Take-Two, Open World, Ubisoft. I suppose you could say Open World, but that really means kind of Assassin's Creed, maybe some of the other sort of Far Cry and things like that. But yeah. Other, other than that, they didn't really have that much history of sort of making something, carving it out and being the absolute masters of doing that. I actually think that in the past, they had some really talented people there, like Jade Raymond, Patrice Cillier, you know, who started sort of Prince of Persia, Assassin's Creed. I, I don't think those two are with the company anymore. I'm sure they still have talent there, but they... I would answer by saying I don't really see like what their, you know, their USP is. What is the unique thing that they do? I mean, I, I do compliment them at the time. I think they, they try a lot of shots. They try many different things, but you could say that they try too many different things. What is like their core thing that they're good at? Um, I like, I think like Codemasters were a really good example of this where that was another company that kept taking many, many shots. This is sort of like 10, 12 years ago. A new CEO came and he goes, look, what are we really good at? We're good at racing games. So let's just be the best at making racing games. And if we do that, we're going to get acquired or we're going to get bought out or IP or whatever. And sure enough, it happened because it turns out that they really do make the best racing games. So why do they consistently underperform? Because, yeah, I think that they're getting a bit stale. I, I would, you know, trust Ubisoft to make a great Assassin's Creed game, a great another like, open world game. But what have they really done is like even halfway innovative in the last 10 years. I would have them down as being like a very solid company. You're probably going to get seven, eight out of 10 on every game that you play. But I feel that they've been left behind a little bit. So that perhaps is a little bit harsh. But, um, you know, I think the last time we, we talked about Ubisoft, and I, I swear that Ubisoft comes up a lot in this metacast that we talk about. It always seems to be like a, a topic. And they were going to put a lot more focus towards mobile, which sure, that makes sense. But it's like, you know, well, that's kind of late in the day, right? And, you know, if anything, mobile is actually for the first time starting to see drop in year-on-year revenues, which is global recession plus COVID, you know, aftermath, et cetera, et cetera. But still, it's, you know, really late in the day and they still haven't really made like a huge acquisition like we've seen some of the other companies. So again, it just feels like a bit sort of chasing their tail rather than, you know, really going for something, putting them with the, 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 you know, the flag in the sand and going for it. Or, you know, they tried their own um, blockchain project. We spoke about that last year, I remember. But they seemed to give up on it pretty easily. It wasn't like, no, we're going to really tough it out and get there in the end. So that would be my summary is I just don't really feel they've got like a very clear direction or a very specific thing that they're trying to do and be the best at. And um, I think that always causes problems with, with companies. The ones that have focus tend to deliver best, you know, overall. Yeah. Well, it seems to be what they're saying, right? Like they're, they're refocusing. And so, um, hopefully, you know, hopefully that. On what though? On what? Yeah, I know. On what? Um, and it seems to be more just like live ops around their most successful games. But yeah, I don't know what that, that really, um, means either. Um, but yeah, hopefully they, they learned that lesson because I think you're right. Uh, but Maria, did you want to add anything there? It's following on from what Anil is saying, really, that 
Ubisoft makes great single player content, deep narrative and immersing you in this rich world. And then they, they almost follow the trends that are in the market rather than setting the trend or taking a trend to the next level. They were the trendsetters in a way of these single player narrative games, but they moved away from that to try to do the live, uh, the live games, the live ops, the multiplayer games. And so should they go back and refocus on what they know how to do best for what their organization is already structured and has the talent to do? Because I think. I think I use this metaphor quite a lot. Like they're a massive truck at high speed trying to turn into a new direction. And so the chances of failing of trying to enter a new segment are very high. So we, have, so we don't the know. The last time they, they really did something that I think was eye-opening is when PlayStation 3 debuted, they came out of Assassin's Creed. And that was like one of the launch titles. And it was like really far ahead of the other titles. Like graphically, the engine was incredible. People were kind of critical of it, saying there isn't much of a game. It's more of a tech demo. But then as the years unfolded, it started to make sense. They'd gone really hard into trying to launch an IP as soon as possible when a new console generation started, really investing into the tech so they could set it up as a multi-year franchise. And that proved to be an incredible thing, their best franchise ever, right, being through total sales. And I think that really opened up the eyes for many because then when ps4 came around like a lot of other companies tried to repeat the same trick saying well that was smart thinking um, so they definitely proved that they can be quite innovative in in trying to do something and in that case they also executed against it really well too but i can't really think of any other time since they did that and maybe it's because for themselves they tried it again with watchdogs themselves similar sort of thing really big new ip looked cool tried to launch it at the start of a new generation this time it didn't work well you know sometimes that happens right games is a risk during the business right but then it seems that they've got a bit of safety first since then. So, um, yeah, I, I just think that that's the only time I can really remember. And I think that's almost sort of 10, 15 years ago that they really tried to do something that was unique and no one else was doing. And we're right. seeing the console market becoming harder and harder to create a new IP that smashes the charts. And this is going to be a very interesting year because there's no Call of Duty, there's no FIFA. And so what are the charts going to look like? Call of Duty and FIFA still probably, <laughs> even though they're not new. Yeah. I remember Ubisoft announced that they wanted to create this Assassin's Creed ecosystem. We discussed it as well. I think it was the three of us. And so I'm curious if that is what they're going to be focusing on. Take your strongest IP and really dig into it. They have already transmedia opportunities lined up. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be part of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the focus makes sense. And the other part of you know, what they're announcing is, you know, light cost cutting, right? Um, and just to put some context behind this, um, because it, it is pretty remarkable when you dig in, it's sort of, and and again, none of this I'm saying to be mean, this is just what the market is reflecting, right? Um, and, you know, it's, but it still is sort of hard to overstate how bloated Ubisoft is compared to other publishers right now. And so I saw um, a post on Twitter today that showed that not only is Ubisoft now a smaller company than CD Projekt, um, and which is, wow. so Ubisoft is about $2.7 billion market cap. CD Projekt is about $3.1 billion market cap um, when converted to USD. Um, but Ubisoft has about 21,000 or so employees, uh, like according to just like recent, you know, filings and stuff. Um, and CD Projekt has a bit over a thousand. So... CD Projekt is now a bit bigger than Ubisoft with one twentieth of the employees. And I'm sure there's a little bit of apples and orange, you know, comparison going on there with some things. But even so, like what that really shows is that like even if Ubisoft 
is going to try to focus in on what it does best. It just has so many people that like it needs to, you know, like figure out what to to do it there. And it makes, you know, we've, we've been seeing layoffs happen across the industry, which is obviously really hard for the people that go through it. But for like the health and longevity of these companies, sometimes you do need to take those kinds of measures. And for a company like Ubisoft that like has said, hey, we really need to slim down our focus. You also probably need to, to slim down your cost. And they're saying that and they're going to try to save some money, but they're not, you know, pulling the most obvious lever. And part of that is probably because of, um, you know, like French laws that make it harder and can be more destructive of culture, you know, when when those kinds of processes drag out. And I think Ubisoft, you know, as a company, like they don't want to have to lay people off. Right. But um, even so, like that's such like a stark number um, that, you know, it just shows that something is wrong in like the the composition of the company itself beyond just like whatever their strategy is. And so um, I don't know how exactly they will want to solve for that or if they'll just try to grow into it again. But um, it is worth noting and it has a pretty big impact on what their margins and profitability is going to be and therefore the value of the the company at large. Um, so I guess, you know, where I, I sort of want to to take this conversation next is I'm curious what other changes need to happen that they're not doing. And maybe to, to kind of kick kickstart this off and uh, then I want to hear your thoughts. It's just I just want to have a reminder that like, as you may recall, late last year, Tencent struck a deal to acquire 49% of the Guillermo family holding company, which owns a good chunk of Ubisoft. And at the time, we said that in many ways, this doesn't change the core operations around live ops and their big AAA games, but it might help them level up on mobile, help them expand into China. And really what it does above all is it cements the Guillemot family's control and makes invector, investor activism um, far less viable. Um, but I, I'm almost wondering like, if Tencent made the right call there, just given how some of this is going and how like some things are trending because obviously like, I mean, like leadership, especially if they truly are hamstrung by like certain mm -hmm. laws and can't make the kind of moves that they want to make, like that's one thing, but kind of the ongoing struggles that the company has had for years at this point around their focus and execution, like at what point do you draw a line and just like, yeah, maybe something will happen there. We can kind of dig into like, just like potential M&A or something that, might happen and is kind of like being reported as being thought through next. But maybe besides that, like what are other levers that this company can pull besides refocusing, besides, you know, just kind of the simple cost cutting? Like if you were to kind of like navigate this this company forward, like is there anything else <laughs> that that you would, you know, say to them or or try to do? I, I would argue in a situation like that is you need like a new visionary really to sort of give it a, a new flavor. Maybe someone can step into a, a more of a vice president stroke non-executive role and let someone else hold the reins. I would say with a company with that many people in it, it will take five years to turn a ship around like that. I think someone like Tencent would recognize that as well. I don't think you'd expect short-term returns. It's just not possible because the thing is, is in order to do that, you'd have to bring in executive positions 
And the sort of level we're talking about, you would be lucky if after a year you saw any results whatsoever. And by results, I mean even like the slightest twinklings that they might make like, I don't know, a half decent prototype that you now want a green light. And now that's going to go into development. And when is that going to see the, you know, the, the air of, you know, <laughs> reality and, and seeing it? I've, yeah. I've seen this happen with quite a few companies. I think that um, some companies who have received funding, maybe from sort of like the Arab regions or Tencent and things like that. And, and basically it's given them uh, more time to be able to make the things that they're good at slightly better. And then they've seen the results. I think the best example I can think of is Capcom, which is an example I use a lot. And I think they were struggling for a while. They got some additional funding. And basically what they did, which is a pretty simple but smart strategy, is let's just spend longer and make our games better. And they had Monster Hunter World and then had like Resident Evil Village and now the new Street Fighter, for example, instead of rushing it out, they're really taking the time. And unsurprisingly, the Devil May Cry 5, if you played that, was really, really, you know, way better than the previous one that they released, which they released with uh, Ninja Theory, actually, in the UK. So... And then, yeah, funnily enough, these games, because they were a lot better, they had record sales, right? DMC5 sold more than any other Devil May Cry game. And once the Hunter World broke records, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's probably what I, I would advise they should do. But I do think that like, when you've been in the doldrums for so long, which you're kind of alluding to, that you do need to freshen it up and have some sort of excitement. Um, even if you're just making the same things over and over, even if you are just going to make open world uh, narrative games, just you're going to go all in on it, right? And, and and come on, guys, what can we do to make the angles? What can we do to make this even better than it was before? You know, let's really think outside the box um, and hope in three or four years' time, which would probably be how long it takes for any results to come out, that you see it. I think, unfortunately, it's, you have to say it's not a quick fix in, in a company that size. I, I've never really worked in consoles, so I... I just want to be careful with my take because I've never experienced it. And one thing I can say is that based on the um, the French governmental laws, because Portugal is similar, but France is even tougher than Portugal, you ew, you will really struggle to lay off um, that many people like you see other countries doing. And even with a hint of potential layoffs, the French Union is going to strike half a day and is also asking for the four-day work week. Um, so the quickest way I see to Ubisoft to shrink to shrink down and have more agility to change as a corporation is to potentially sell off parts of their business. Yeah, I mean, selling I think like is a is a real option, um, and with a market cap as compressed as it is, um, it might actually start being more interesting to potential suitors. Of course, like if they feel like they can actually take the moves that they want that, you know, existing management hasn't been able to do, um, which might not be viable or they just might have to, you know, suck it up and, you know, like kind of brace the pain that that could come with it. But I just kind of wanted to throw out the idea like, hey, if these rumors do amount to something and they totally might not, like who actually would be a decent suitor for Ubisoft and who who would even want to, right? Uh, kind of given the the toughness of the situation um, there. And so maybe I can kind of start out just by saying that obviously Tencent <laughs> is probably like the biggest, you know, shareholder, uh, you know, games games company shareholder already and is probably, you know, a front runner to like any kind of deal that will be made and obviously has capital and all of that. But um, beyond that, like what are what are the top options if there are any? The only one that comes to mind that could have that sort of treasure chest is the Saudi Arabia investment fund. But that comes with 
a whole set of polit- geopolitical uh, blockers that could be in the way in terms of France allowing Saudi Arabia to essentially acquire uh, a company that is pretty much like the banner of gaming in France. Microsoft could add it to their gamer pass just to give those regulators some more work to do. Um, <laughs> or I suppose Sony could come in and, you know, try to get it to sort of compete with the Game Pass offer from Microsoft. But I'm not sure the IPs that Ubisoft have, even though they're strong, are, are quite as instantly recognizable as um, the sort of stuff that Activision Blizzard has. So yeah. I, I would actually go agree, or I think it would be more of private equity buyout or something like that. Yeah, that's for... That's where my brain hovers too. I think um, private equity um, makes a lot of sense if they're willing to kind of suck up the pain of the whole working with French unions and things like that because um, they're the ones who would probably be the most willing to take more drastic steps that might be needed um, for better or worse. But yeah, I was also thinking too, the, the Microsoft tie-in could be interesting. Again, if they truly are refocusing on their most important IPs and, and games that can, you know, perform at a higher level and last longer, like some type of Game Pass tie-in um, could be could be pretty interesting and, and move the needle for um, Microsoft too. But yeah, of course, they're not going to do that right now, um, given the, the current climate. Um, and yeah, I doubt Saudi Arabia would go for a full acquisition as a turnaround. Um, so yeah, my best guess would be Tencent if it were to happen. And if not that, then probably private equity. But what might be most likely is that nothing happens <laughs> and that they, you know, they just continue to hack it. away. <laughs> yeah. Because Tencent also, when they made their most recent increase in their stake through the Guillemont um, pool, was that they could not acquire a higher stake yeah. for a period of time. So they have that against them. I think China is going to take a, a super stock 1% from Tencent and not take, but I don't know what's the correct word, acquire. As part of their governmental <laughs> governmental policy, and I don't know how that might affect the geopolitics of that potential acquisition. Uh, and I think additionally, I mean, it was already mentioned here that Tencent is very intelligent in terms of the investments that they make. And if you look at the bets that they have taken, it's some very smart investments. And I don't know if Ubisoft could prove the the return of their investments, especially when they're already trying to recover from the negative mobile. Um, revenue growth. Yeah, it would be tough for anyone. Uh, but again, it is at a low enough price that if they are willing to make changes and they truly have some type of value add, like in Tencent's case, truly being able to take mobile to the next level and unleashing their games across China effectively, like that actually could add value, um, uh, like real value. But yeah, of course, we'll see. Uh, probably nothing will happen. And if it does, it'll take a while. And then, you know, the saga will continue under whoever, whatever company banner, right? Um, so, um, yeah, we'll see. But anyways, I thought it's interesting. I mean, it's sort of a tough conversation to have anytime a company is struggling and throwing out ideas that affect people in real life and have ramifications for people all the way up and down the chain and shareholders of all types. So, um, yeah, trying to be sensitive as we we talk about it. So, yeah, wishing the the whole team the best. Hope, you know, you all can... can uh, navigate turn turn the ship around as best as possible i'm talking about businesses we have voodoo up next 
Yeah, well, this one's really spicy. I would go as far as saying this is the spiciest news of 2023. Admittedly, at the time of recording, <laughs> we're only 18 days in. So, you know, that's not that much of a, uh, a statement, but I think it is really interesting. So let, let's do a little bit of a history lesson first before jumping into the news. So Voodoo, they're actually 10 years old uh, this year, which is, you know, shows you time flies. And what Voodoo are really famous for is inventing the hyper-casual models. So Two French guys started the company back in 2013. They actually were under a lot of turmoil for the first couple of years. And then they still had the strategy of like, oh, we really need to just get as many users as possible into our game to, to monetize them. So they started optimizing and going that way. They started releasing a game every week and they sort of accidentally discovered the hyper-casual model. So make as many games as you can, get loads of people in. They won't necessarily stay there for a long time, but they'll stay there for a good time, which is watching a few adverts. You monetize of them and, you know, the whole sort of LTV versus C CPI model, well, you know, if your CPI is really, really low, the LTV doesn't have to be very high. And they sort of re-challenge people's thinking about what could be done. And, you know, they basically made an entirely new segment, an area of the business that was, you know, hugely pivotal in many shifts that we've seen in gaming, including the hitherto mentioned ATT changes that was sort of the big breakout story in mobile last year and may well explain what's happened. So sure, they've been around for 10 years. What are they doing? Well, they've announced that they're going to enter into blockchain gaming, which sort of feels like 18 months too late <laughs> if you sort of think about where sort of trends go in the games industry. But I guess, you know, this has been planned for a long time. And what's really interesting about it is, you know, they could have gone about it in many different ways. And from what we can gather so far, it appears that they're sort of going sort of like as a publisher plus model. So they've got their own games in development. I believe they have 10 in development, but they're also going to be a publisher and they are also going to launch their own coin. Um, so using that kind of model and, you know, what, why would they do this? So, um, you know, I can give like some, uh, knowledge myself, but I think I'll kind of pass it on, but I think, you know, let, let's talk about it. So what do you think has prompted them to make the shift? I think what's interesting is if you go onto their, their website, you know, blockchain now is on the top as being like a really big part of games, publishing apps, blockchain before we get to the rest of it. So they're not doing this by halves. It seems like quite a thought out, well thought out strategy that has deliberately taken time to execute. And now we're going to start seeing the early parts of the execution. And the fact they've announced it right at the beginning of the year sort of suggests that we will see real stuff coming up this year from so we'll start from there and I'll give some more thought angles at the moment. Marie, you look itching to get going here. What have you got to say? I'm not, don't pick on me. <laughs> so I think Voodoo announced the then investment into blockchain games. Was it in 2021? And so I actually looked at Voodoo's data uh, with Data AI and they've been on a downward trend of their downloads for years now. And it was just even more notable sharp decline from 2021. So, you know, hashtag ATT. And, <laughs> and so I think they turned to um, blockchain to start exploring that, giving with the investment, seeing, seeing the games, understanding the tech, making some hires, because Voodoo is all about building their uh, first party technology on how to prototype and test to market games very quickly. And I believe that's what they're investing in doing with blockchain games for, for mobile. And then they also announced, uh, they did the acquisition of Beachbum. And I believe, well, given the success that they had with that, um, if we look at the revenue, I believe that they're doing something similar with blockchain. They're partnering with uh, game devs and then potentially when they have a good working relationship and potentially a title that's very successful with that game dev, they'll likely acquire that expertise into the company. I have a lot of questions um, and not all of them are bad. I, one is just, I think there still is a lot that we don't know 
right? Like we don't know exactly like what is the economy design going to be? We know they're going to ICO, like have an initial coin offering of, you know, voodoo coin or whatever they're going to call it, which we haven't seen one of those, you know, like really in a while, like at like a big scale, like that's kind of a, a remnant of like a previous crypto era at this point. So, so that's interesting, but how is it really going to work? Like, is this going to be a play to earn kind of model? Hopefully not. Is there going to be more of like a skills based kind of model? Like where you see like, you know, the company skills, they have a platform that, you know, has a bunch of games that, you know, it's, you know, uh, you know, like PVP skill based games with like real money earnings. Like, is it going to be that kind of thing? Because uh, I don't know how exciting that's going to be. And we've also seen some of that with um, with just like Web3 games already. Right. Uh, where if you look at the the list of just like the top um, Web3 games based on unique active wallets. A bunch of those are hyper casual kinds of games or even, you know, like more like game platforms that like host different kinds of hyper casual oriented games um, with, again, kind of more of that skills type of, of business model. And it's not really clicking. I guess parts of it could be like, quote unquote, sustainable. But I don't know if there has proven between any of those examples to be like a truly scalable proven model. So I kind of hope they don't go in that direction. But then it leaves me wondering, well, like what direction are they going to go in as an economic model and kind of tying in incentives, you know, with some type of like currency into the gameplay across like this platform, really like this publishing platform of lots of different kinds of games in this ecosystem. And I just don't know how that's going to work. I also don't know uh, like just how like the UX is going to work and like what all the rules, especially with like app store policies, like not being super friendly and still all up and change. It feels like a weird move to like bet the company right now on this type of change when there still is a lot on mobile that you can't control the the UX on. And so, again, maybe there's more I don't know there. I'm sure I know there is because we there's just a lot that hasn't been released yet in, in their plans. But I just have a bunch of questions about like more like tactically, how is this going to work? I kind of understand big picture. Sure, it's a bet on LTVs, but like embedding new economic models into these games, they can probably monetize perhaps better than, you know, what hyper casual has been, especially what it could be if it continues to struggle. So it's kind of a bet in a new direction on new economic models. But I just tactically, I, I still have a bunch of questions. Well, those are great questions. Of course, we can only speculate, but I, I could give some thoughts on me of what I think they will be doing and why they will be doing it. So I think first and foremost, like, you know, they can kind of create a platform. With HyperCasual, you could make tons of apps, but these apps are all separate and perhaps you would control the advertising within them so you could send players from one app to another and try and keep your ecosystem and dear you that way. There wasn't really anything that was unifying them all together. In theory, though, when you have a coin, you now have something that can transfer between all games same as NFTs. And the thing with a coin is that that would mean that the value of the coin well, it will have both utility and value. And the value of that coin will increase over time, which is just what someone like Foodie would really want. So I can envisage them having some kind of platform-based app that acts as your kind of like launcher into each of these things. And then you have loads and loads of apps. They will also, as per the thing, they say, contact us if you've got a blockchain game or you've got a game. So, you know, we know they've got world-class analytics suites in terms of being able to identify very quickly what games are working, which ones aren't, which means that 
their platform is going to have loads of games that people are going to want to play on a very regular basis. I think it's far-fetched to say that these things will be true. And with these coins now interoperable in terms of the utility between the games, that's going to add a lot. Why is that good? Because that coin value is going to go up over time. And it's a speculative asset potentially that they can make a, a lot of returns on. Um, what's also interesting about the coin model is that that's not necessarily tied into the performance of the game per se. In fact, sometimes with the coin, it could just be that people decide to get pumping and the value of the coin could go up or it could go down. And it can therefore be both tied to, but not related to global macroeconomic situations. You know, you can also essentially have a business where you sell a load of that coin to make loads of revenue, then yeah, sure, the price crashes and it dumps, but then you just buy back in and then it goes back up in value again, 10, 20x, and you could keep rinsing and repeating that, adding an item and, and making money from it. So I think on paper, I can see definitely what they'd be trying to do and why. Whether or not they'll be able to execute on it, I think we can come to that a bit later. But I have seen like a similar sort of things that some other people have tried to do, which is to make like, there's another project called Arcade, which is quite similar, which again has all these mini games that you play a bit like an arcade. And instead of putting real coins in, you're putting a, a cryptocurrency in and it's working on that model. And if that on paper makes a lot of sense, I have to say actually that's a, an idea that's come from my own team plenty of times. But the thing to really make something like that work is, you know, you need to have the sort of expertise and setup to be able to really get it to work. And what better company in the world to be able to execute on that vision if you think it's going to work than Voodoo? There's very few. Probably the only ones that could do it would be the other sort of hyper-casual suspects that we see, like, you know, like Say Games or Quali or things like this. So I think it makes tons of sense what they're trying to do. Um, and I think it's quite brave of them to to go into it so strongly, so quickly. And I think, you know, one of their strengths that we have to say about Voodoo is that, you know, they're really data-driven. They sort of really cut out the, the subjectivity and they just try and use that, you know, for better or for worse. And they're quite brave of it. And I, I could see the sort of benefit of them trying to do it. So I think, unless you've got anything to add there, Maria, I think that's probably what they're trying to achieve. So I'm imagining that they will essentially, you'll be able to get your game, they will help developers get the games to market, give them sort of free expertise, but you'll be tied into having to use the Voodoo coin and or NFTs. And that means that those NFTs and Voodoo related assets are going to increase in value. They'll pay some returns to the developers based on how many people are playing the game, what their usage is. And therefore their own, they were already doing that. Whereas before they were taking a revenue share, they're not only getting the revenue share, but they're actually seeing this, you know, increase in value of things that they have ultimate control over and there's immutable. Um, that's what I think. They're basically just blockchaining hypercasual. Yeah, I think it's a smart move from them because they're trying to remove their dependency on hypercasual. Even in their website, they don't even talk about hypercasual publishing anymore. It's hybrid and casual. And so I think they're faced with two choices. Their first choice is entering a red ocean with going from 30 cent CPIs to trying to develop games that have $30 CPIs um, and trying to you know, improve on very mature games that are topping the charts now. And then they have the risky blue ocean, which you don't have an incumbent right now. That is the casual, hyper-casual, hybrid-casual, whatever genre you want to put on it with, with mobile. And if they can be first to market in building this technology, building the know-how, they can become the publisher of choice for devs that want to go into a, a partnership with a publisher to publish blockchain games on mobile. And I also think that has that has extra value because you have this 
really passionate community of the DGENs that know crypto in and out, but they don't have that expertise of building the mobile games. And Voodoo has that rich history of the Voodoo Academy and wants to introduce game devs or even, you know, graduates that don't know how to develop hyper casual games to teach them. And, and so I just can, I can see how they have that unique advantage advantage of the culture to, to build it out. Now, it does have quite a lot of risks. I've heard a lot of critique that it just feels old school, their approach with the ICO, the, ICO, yeah, yeah. the, the initial coin offering, yeah. and also like the tokenomics with their, with their coin. But we'll have to see. I think they're only meant to publish more, more details in fall this year. So they do have the time to listen to the builders, to the community, and iterate on their strategy. The, the timing is kind of off, though, because what typically tends to happen is to maximize a return on this. You would do it during what's considered the bull market. And um, we're definitely not in one of those right now as someone who works in crypto themselves. So they are kind of taking a bit of a hit on their own return. I mean, for example, if they had announced this, it would not be possible. But when Axie was blowing up, I mean, it would fly. It would, it would you know, the coin speculation would be absolutely crazy on it just on day one. Um, so that time could easily come again. But, you know, I don't think that they're a company that's necessarily under pressure to be able to execute or deliver immediately. So I do wonder, timing-wise, why they've chosen to announce it right now. Um, quite brave, I think, in, in that regard. You know, they could easily just wait until, you know, slightly fairer weather conditions and then do it then, and they'd probably see way more interest. But perhaps they are just trying to learn as soon as possible. You know, that's something I, I personally also believe in as well. I can say that, like, yeah, developing on blockchain because there is no playbook. It is really difficult. And those learnings that people make early are going to be really, really important. Learning the flows and things like that, just building your tech so that it can work. You know, we're in very early days and all this stuff is going to take time to refine. So maybe just doing it as soon as possible is one way to just beat everyone else to market. And keeping that knowledge in-house is going to be huge. The only thing that really, sorry, the two things that come to mind about the timing is they've been investing for almost a year now in prototyping these blockchain games. And they mentioned that they have two stealth games. So perhaps they have a game that could be ready to be launched yeah. to, to market formally through, you know, Voodoo in, in the fall of, of this year. And also potentially, you know, to gather interest to do the traditional marketing that we see with crypto to start creating some hype around the project and maybe there are already deals starting to happen about wanting to reserve parts of you know coins to to purchase earlier on but yeah i'm just speculating here yeah i think the most interesting part is what you said earlier maria just about building some kind of unique differentiation or competitive advantage around being a publisher for other web3 you know developers like i think that's the the more interesting piece here uh, more so than even just like launching a their own token or something, something like that. Um, but I, I am curious to to hear your thoughts on just kind of that token aspect in relation to developers coming on and working with Voodoo, uh, because you know typically when you're a developer that works with a publisher, you don't necessarily have to adapt their currency <laughs> and kind of be at the whims of like you know like economics that you don't fully control. And beyond that, I mean we've you know, at least at Novik, we've studied a bunch of like ecosystem designs around Web3 games. And most of them that leverage one central currency across an ecosystem really struggle because each game necessitates its own economics. And to have like one uh, currency that has to fit the mold of all of these different kinds of games is a really hard thing to do. And I guess it can work maybe better when the games are simpler. 
um, and maybe they're all aligned in some way around like how the economics work, but it, it feels maybe a bit limiting and, and risky from that standpoint. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, you know, as people who, you know, make mobile games, if you were a developer and you were looking at a publisher, yeah. like what, like, how would you think about just like this coin element maybe being thrown upon you? Yeah, let me say on this, I will say one thing that's very interesting about Voodoo is that Voodoo were notorious for being dreadful for developers to work with. Like if you looked under the terms of their contract for what they would take for you if you had a hyper-casual game, they were taking you to the cleanest. They were not friendly at all. And Web3 is all about a decentralized ecosystem that people believe in where things can cross over and there isn't this sort of one actor that controls everything, right? That's the whole point of it. That's the purpose of it. It's open. No one sets the rules and it's all immutable and it's all there to, to, to see. So I think that is going to be something that's going to be very interesting to look at because if they try and do what they did before in hyper-casual and just add blockchain to it, it's not going to work because I think the most passionate blockchain developers aren't going to want to go on that platform because they're not going to have the control or upside that they would normally. So they're going to have to think of some model where they, they can do. There are ways around that, of course, under the terms of the deals, perhaps they could pay the developer or give them some proceeds of food and coin or something similar. And that actually could work and get around what I've just said, because then any upside that Voodoo sees, a developer would see too, which would mean that they would be, um, you know, motivated to want to keep supporting and making their game be good because they're going to stand to benefit, maybe not as much as Voodoo, but they will still benefit. Whereas, you know, in hyper-casual, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but I think people will have to be quite careful of it. I think you kind of mentioned before that, you know, it could be more like, you know, people just starting out or indie devs. I think that was always the benefit of Voodoo, right? Like your two-man garage band studio could get to market using them, get some traction, and then using that could go to the next step. Perhaps you get bought by Voodoo, or now you can go to a VC. You might not be able to do that particular game, but you can say, hey, look how much uh, me and Maria made of our game that, you know, we made, et cetera, et cetera. So that could still be the part of it. But I think that if they utilize the same sort of practices they did in the early days of hyper casual, they're going to have a pretty rude way awakening. Not knowing all of the full details of that experience, all, all of these partnerships have pros and cons. So exactly like you're saying, it depends what you're looking for. And so if the part, part of the con is that you have to adapt to introduce this coin or the tokenomics, well, it could still be worth it if they give you a free platform to integrate the technology, a frictionless integration of a wallet and a marketplace, not having to spend on UA and getting the know-how of learning how to do tokenomics. It all well, depends. What if, what if they offered you a 70-30 revenue split with them getting 70? It depends on your pros and cons <laughs> and what you're looking. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, because that's what I've been saying. I've, I've heard some like, quite extreme examples of where even if you made like a really successful game on their platform, the developer themselves wouldn't necessarily get that much upside of it. So it felt more like you were a work for hire with, rather than in the joint partnership. And, and that's what I think people would be looking for if you're going to go on someone else's platform, if you want to, want to see that like it's fair for all parties. I, I think it, it really depends, for example, on what's your financial position. Because yeah. if you have a dream of becoming a founder and you want to launch games that you created, but you don't have the funds to, to do so, that 70-30 cut in terms of, you know, giving more social mobility and options to the market. I don't know. Does it does it seem fair? Maybe not entirely, but again, it's it gives options to builders out there. 
Yeah, I think we should get the CEO on for an interview at some point. That yeah, would be, that'd be, it'd be a really, be really interesting really conversation whenever they're ready to talk. Yeah. And you know, Navic uh, has consultancy for tokenomics design. So we do. We help a lot of teams. <laughs> so, on, let, let me round down. <laughs> we, we've talked about what we think they're going to do. Do you think that they will succeed in, in becoming a a good blockchain business? Uh, admittedly, we don't know much about it, but just you know, your kind of gut feeling. I'm skeptical. Um, it's just again. Yeah, these these economies are hard. It's so early. We haven't seen much success anywhere to to kind of be betting on lots of other be- people being successful with you. And I still I still don't fully grasp the whole like how this is going to work frictionlessly on mobile. I think the the headwinds there could be a bit tough. Could totally be wrong. There's still a lot we don't know, but just based on what we do know, I yeah, those questions leave me leave me wondering. I I I think it all depends on the execution, but I think that they have a much better chance than other projects. I I think because they're so data heavy and they learn fast and they go quickly, I think that in a new emerging technology sector, the most likely winners are going to be people that think like that. Like as simple as it sounds, I kind of feel that like people that ship products early and often tend to get there, whereas people that take mm. absolutely ages, that doesn't work in a market that is immature and it, there's, there's no playbook you just have to go quick and work it out so i think they have got a chance i think maria though is really right to say it really depends on like the genre itself right we have not yet seen the candy crush equivalent of, on the blockchain like once that happens it's a whole different conversation not just something that lasts for a summer but is you know lasting for years and years and has like you know top 10 in a world revenue sort of thing but then if someone was to do it i I, I think they have a chance, though. I'm, I'm more bullish on this, and that's, I think, why I, I wanted to take this news story for this week. I think it's a very interesting thing, and it's, I think it's actually great to see like a big player like this that's known for being disruptive and succeeding in disruption coming into the space. So a few more people like that is encouraging to see as someone who works in the same sector. Yeah, last um, question for me. Do you think we'll see other other big publishers take a similar approach this year? Like, will we see like the other top players also maybe not bet the company on Web3, but like try to compete <laughs> and yes. more this dimension, maybe launch their own tokens and things like that? I'm not sure about token, but um, I, I know that there definitely are other big ones that are going in. And you can see the ones we maybe even have mentioned it on this show already, like, um, you know, Scopely have announced that they're going to be going into it quite well and Network as yeah. well. So I think it seems to me that they are the three early of the big boys going into the space. Um, and they'll be interesting to see which were theory And they, these are more of the Western companies or in Asia, there's a lot that are going into it. So, uh, and none of these companies are betting the house, so to speak, but they are definitely going for it, knowing what it, it could entail. And I think they all have a similar philosophy, which is like, you know, learn first or be, you know, get in there early because look what happened in free to play. There's a lot of people that dismissed it. And then you had to end up buying a studio for 6 billion just to get back into the game. Right. Because, you'd ignored it for so long. Yeah, I think pressure in terms of your survival and growth of the company just puts you in a different position to try to find solutions and really carve out what you're going to do next. And I think companies that are, well, were fully reliant or are fully reliant on hyper-casual games for their growth, they have to pivot. And so, you know, Voodoo is in a strong position that they have to chase for it. And that's why I'm more bullish on them. Like they are fighting for the growth of their company and, and its continuation. So 
looking forward to what happens. And on the headwinds of the tokenomics, I think that the point that makes me more bullish about Voodoo succeeding in entering blockchains in mobile is that they are experts in UA. And I don't think we've seen other studios with that expertise or a blockchain game reach mass market because that will require a, a big element of traditional UA, well, traditional in air quotes, really, uh, of mm. UA. And Voodoo knows how to do it really well. Yeah, and what's interesting is I would say that Network, Scopely and Voodoo, that's something that I would say is in common with all of them. Network have like a uh, sort of a bespoke solution that's known for being absolutely amazing for UA and, and you know, calculating LTVs. And, you know, Scopely certainly got good records as well as per the Stumble Guys acquisition that was made last year. Um, so, yeah, I think that you're right. That's the competitive advantage these companies will have. And who owns a minority stake in Voodoo? Tencent. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that, but yeah. There they are again. Who wins, Tencent wins. Well, we're going to wrap up today's roundtable. Anil, Aaron, thank you for joining as always. Always a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can help us reach others by subscribing on your favorite platform. We love hearing from you. Please leave us a comment on YouTube and let us know what you thought about the discussions that we had today. You can sign up to the free Navic Digest newsletter and also listen to our other content. So yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you.